Well, let us, let us begin. I am going to um, start by talking to you just briefly about our text this morning. I told you last Sunday that, that this is a kind of part two to a sermon I started last week in this section of Ezekiel 16. Our text this morning, I'm going to offer to you the, the you should see the focus or the main fat of it, so to speak, as excess. That is, we read about some things, pride, excess, neglect of the poor, abominations. It seems to me that 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 aspect of excess is really at the heart of the text. Let's go there now, right? And we'll read this uh, to, to begin our sermon. Behold, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, Ezekiel speaking to the people of Jerusalem. And they've already been told that their sin is worse than the sin of Sodom, which was Again, I, I, I tried to say last Sunday, that's like saying if, if Ezekiel were to say to us, America, your sin is worse than that of Stalin or of Nazi Germany or something like that. That gets close, and not that it's the same kind of sin necessarily, but, but it gets close to uh, the shock and the offense that would have come with such a statement. And so then the question becomes, if Jerusalem's worse than Sodom, what was Sodom? Here's the answer. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, Ezekiel says. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They, that is Sodom, were haughty, again going back to pride, and did an abomination before me, so I removed them, going back in Israel's history, I removed them, Sodom, when I saw it. This is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. Um, sorry, I, maybe you weren't ready for that one at that time. Sorry. This is the word of the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we say together, thanks be to God. Now, I don't, I, it's been a long time since I preached a sermon on two verses. <laughs> and so um, I'm going to offer some, uh, some reflections on this text, some application for us. And then the last part of the sermon this morning is going to be a kind of meditation and reflection on what we do with this. Okay. And so I want to to offer to you that this text shows us at least three things about material excess in the world, okay? And that is, first of all, I want to tell you about the danger of excess and how it's related to pride. That's that first part of the text, This was the sin. She had pride, excess of food, excess in um, luxury and other other things. Depends on your translation. Um, Two, I want to tell you about the consequences of that excess. So when when a people has excess of food, excess of luxury, excess of stuff, what it does to them. And then finally, I want to talk to you about the safeguards God has given us against excess. All right? So let's start with the danger. That is pride. And I talked a lot about this last Sunday, so I'm going to summarize it rather than go over the whole sermon again. Last week, we started talking about the sin of Sodom. Ezekiel says the guilt of Sodom was pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. Some translations, you'll see uh, abundant idleness or laziness for prosperous ease. But she did not aid the poor and needy and committed an abomination before God. That's what we're going to reflect on together this morning. We're going to start with the question, what do we know about how Sodom got there, how she got to be so prideful? We were told back in Genesis 13... where we first kind of meet the city of Sodom, so to speak, in this part of Genesis, we read, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. Okay? So what was their sin? Does the Bible tell us what their sin was? I'm so glad you asked because it does. Ezekiel says it was pride. Okay? 
So what is it precisely that made them so proud? We do know. In Genesis 19, Lot, right, Abraham's nephew, is met by these two angelic visitors. Some uh, commentators and scholars think these are representations, as it were, manifestations of God Himself. But let's just go with angelic visitors for the purpose of this sermon. Messengers from God who tell Him they've arrived because they're responding to something specific. They are responding to the outcry of the people of Sodom. Did you know that? It's what we read in Genesis 18. I'm going to open that up kind of in a little, uh, little workshop we've got for a text here. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry. Okay? So there it is. The Lord tells Abraham, we're trying something new this morning. That's right. Okay. Heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. Okay? So you've got this, this problem then. People crying out to the Lord because things have gotten that bad. You see um, the language again. The, oh, so, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The angelic messengers are sent because they're answering this outcry. And that word is very interesting. It is the same word that shows up in the next chapter, in chapter 19, which we'll go there now, sorry, um, where the, the messengers tell him, we're about to destroy the city that is Sodom completely, and then they tell Lot the outcry against this place is so great, it has reached Yahweh, He sent us to destroy it. So what, what is this word? What's going on with this word outcry? One Jewish commentator observed that uh, the dialectical variants of this word connote, excuse me, connote the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of the victim for help in some great injustice. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says this. He said that this term is a technical word for loud protest against cruel treatment or even the scream of a rape victim. Sodom was screaming in the ears of heaven with the cries of those suffering there alongside the affluence, gluttony, and comfort of some of its inhabitants. So Sodom is filled with brutal injustice, violence, and cruelty. These messengers also come down to the city. So they tell Lot destruction is coming. That's what we just saw. And they also tell him something else. They say, we're going to sleep tonight in the square, in the city square, basically in the, in the street. And Lot begs them to come in and stay in his house and not to sleep in the city square. Why? Because he knows what the men of Sodom are like. We read in Genesis 19... Verses 4 and 5. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounding the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. A rather polite way of putting what they are demanding to do. Okay? For the, for the sake of younger ears in here, I, I won't press that point into the corners. Lot condemns their sin. He tells them, Please, sirs, do not do this wicked thing. And what, how do they respond? They say, stand back. And, and look at what they said. This fellow, Lot, came to sojourn, and he's become our judge. How dare you tell us that what we're trying to do is wrong? They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. Remember our text from this morning. The guilt of your sister Sodom was pride. So what was the pride of Sodom? 
if you will permit me, I'm going to summarize that part of it is what we might today call gay pride. That is pride in their deviancy. How dare you judge us? That's what they're saying to Lot, right? How dare you judge me for this? That's the pride. How dare you claim to be judge over me? Why are you acting so judgy? And what happens when sinners are confronted with the true ugliness of their repentance? They rage. Look down at that. I mean, the bottom of the verse. Breaking down the door. That's the pride of Sodom. But the guilt of Sodom is not just their pride. If we can go back to Ezekiel. Sorry, I forgot that uh, I can control this now, barely. Um, So Sodom sins, pride, gluttony, laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. I accidentally changed that to the new living. Didn't mean to, but here we are. Uh, I think there's more to this text then than simply observing that pride's at the root of it. What we see here is a process. I'm going to show it to you now. It's what Lot observed back in Genesis 19. It's why he stayed so close to Sodom, right? Because Lot saw, if you remember last Sunday, the land was rich, right? Lots of uh, prosperity here. Good place to live. And so that's the danger of luxury. That's the danger of prosperity. It can inflate your pride. And then what are the consequences of that? Our text this morning gives us two. Neglect of the poor, at the end of verse 49, and a descent into abomination, that's verse 50. And these, this is my second point, are the consequences of excess. The reason why we have to take this text seriously is because we are in a very prosperous land, right? I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. We live in a land that for the last few generations, God's given us more prosperity probably than any other nation in the history of the world. So we should sit up and listen to a text like this because apparently, while we never should be ashamed of God's blessing, that was last Sunday, you are not called to be ashamed of your blessing. At the same time, when we are in possession of excess, much more than we need, we tend to fall into a temptation of pride. Neglect of the poor, and in Sodom's case, sexual abomination, sexual sin. Which might sound like a really odd claim to make. But, but I remind you, we are talking about the sin of Sodom, right? Most of us, when we hear sin of Sodom, if I hadn't given you the background of Ezekiel 16, you'd just be like, okay, sin of Sodom, we know what that is. Uh, in fact, there's a word for it, sodomy, right? Homosexuality. Men and women refusing God's design of complementar- complementarity. And instead, pridefully pursuing their mirror image. Rather than being united to not the same as me, I am pursuing same as me. Right? A sort of maybe oversimplified way of putting it. But it's important for us to address this because there are advocates in our day, uh, particularly advocates of, of um, homosexuality and other sexual license, who will take this verse in Ezekiel and say, look at this, Sodom's sin wasn't about sexuality. It was about not feeding the poor. And first of all, we should say, that is what the text says. We should always be careful about taking a Bible text and trying to make it say what it don't say. Right? So if somebody says, here's what the text says, I'm going to do my best to say, amen. That is what the text says. But keep reading. Right? The very next verse, verse 50. She was proud and committed detestable sins, that's abominations, so I wiped her out as you have seen. Okay? They were haughty, they were proud, and did an abomination before me. Right? This word abomination 
which, uh, again, it can, uh, any way we can switch that over? I don't know what I've done, Burley. I'm sorry. I switched it over to the wrong translation. But the word abomination, which does show up in the ESV, happens about 20 times in your English Bibles, in the Old Testament. It occurs only twice in Leviticus, both times referring to what we would call the sin of homosexuality. Furthermore, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, one of the catechisms of our church, there's a strong prohibition against idleness and gluttony. Idleness and gluttony. And the proof text is this verse. Ezekiel 16, 49. And if you were to do a word search in the larger catechism, you would find that, that the word idleness as a prohibition, you know, against idleness, don't be idle, lazy, slothful, etc., comes up a few times. And, and if I were to ask, if I were just to think, okay, idleness and gluttony, what commandment does that violate? Where my brain naturally goes is 10th commandment, right? Don't covet. Idleness, gluttony, to me, kind of has to do with covetousness, but that's not actually where you find it. I'll tell you where you find it. What are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Now that's, that's you shall not commit adultery, right? You shall not commit adultery. And so the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment are, this is from our larger catechism, and you have a whole list here, right, um, that, are, that are covering all sorts of applications and, and ways that the seventh commandment applies. So it's not just about adultery, also, I mean, you've got here fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, all unnatural lusts, unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections, so on and so forth, okay? Uh, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful, dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews. What does that mean, right? Did you see it? Keeping of stews, that's a fun one. I'm just going to point that out to you today. Keeping, keeping of stews, it has nothing to do with soup, Okay? So a stew, actually a better parallel today, would be putting the mental Blu-ray disc into your mind and playing it, right? Keeping of stews is entertaining of fantasies is the way that we would say it today, and resorting to them, right? And then the next bit, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, right? So on and so forth. It goes on and on. Here's the bit I want to point out to you. Idleness. And gluttony. Now, isn't that interesting? Our catechism classifies idleness and gluttony from Ezekiel 16 as violations of the seventh commandment. What does idleness and gluttony have to do with sexual sin? Ezekiel's answer, brothers and sisters, is everything. What happens to the human heart when it has excess? It gets proud. We've already seen that, remember last week, Deuteronomy 8. The Lord said, I'm going to provide you with all this, and the danger is going to be, you're going to look around and say, I acquired all this. I did this. Pride. And that's when you're going to fall. Prosperity so abundant that you get bored. That's the idea. And when you get bored, you have to invent new distractions, new amusements, new physical attractions. In other words, the modern obsession with sexual identity I submit to you, is a first world problem. We got a little taste of this when COVID first hit, right? When the lockdowns hit and we were, we almost or uh, we never or almost never left our homes and everyone felt kind of confused and not in control and at the mercy of death itself. And suddenly all those debates about like sexuality and social activism seemed to vanish for a couple of months. When luxury and excess and idleness begin to shape your life, 
Pride comes in like a thief and steals away your satisfaction with what God has given you. Excessive luxury and comfort and idleness will tend to fuel your pride. Because, when, look, and here's the reason. Think about it. When hardly any worldly discomfort can touch you, you begin to think, I, I'm living like a king. I'm living like a god. I can live like God does. And, and I just, you know, I can simply bring my will to pass, whatever it is. Whatever I want to be done is what will be done. Whatever I desire becomes my right. And since this is what I want, I must get it. What I'm trying to say to you is the only way a culture gets to that point is if we cease to take seriously pride and gluttony and idleness and selfishness. It is in part why we are facing the challenges of the sexual identity movement. It's also why pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's why the wider culture generally believes that if you have a desire or impulse, you must obey it. Now, isn't that amazing? Because let me offer this to you. The political right in our country tends to see the chief like sin problem in our midst as the sexual revolution and what it's done, and the great immorality that flows from it. And meanwhile, the political left tends to see our chief problem as uh, people being rich or, or greedy or, or neglect of the poor. And here's the prophet Ezekiel saying, you fools, it's the same sin. It's the same sin. You've got, you, you, you've got the right pretending that excessive wealth and luxury is not a problem or a threat and it doesn't lead us to hell. And you've got the left pretending that sexual perversion and promiscuity is not a threat and it doesn't lead us to hell. And Ezekiel says, it's the same root problem, don't be fools. And the great majority of a lot of what passes for Christianity in our land tends to fail here. I I think too often we we rage against sexual sin because we know that's wrong, that's in our Bibles, but sometimes I think we are tempted to yawn at idle, lazy, self-gratifying excess, not realizing it's the same thing. We tend to think of the sexual revolution and all its consequences as some sort of weird like, like nuclear bomb that just went off in the 60s, right? But what if it is the bomb that goes off in every Sodom, in every Las Vegas, in every New Orleans, in every California, in every Louisiana, in every America, in every city and nation that reaches a point of material excess and luxury that then comes back on them and, and crushes them? What if material excess and luxury triggers something in the soul of a people and the souls of their children that makes them perpetually bored and unsatisfied with all that God is and all that He's given? And so, what happens? They'll chase after endless new inventions of spiritual rebellion because God, who is near to the poor and the suffering, seems irrelevant to the luxury-saturated rich folks. Perhaps this is why Solomon asked the Lord something really amazing. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Remember, what's the most repeated thing in Ezekiel? That they will know that I am the Lord. Or, on the other hand, lest I be poor and steal. So in other words, don't make me rich, I might violate the first commandment. Don't make me poor, I might violate the eighth commandment. Right? I mean, what what an insightful moment into the human spirit. Both riches and poverty are threats to your obedience, to your joy, to your soul. Give me neither poverty nor riches, just give me what I need. Almost like Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he told us to pray for daily bread. Only what is needful. Why? Lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal. In other words, when we grow overly prosperous... We tend to stop caring about what God has said. We get bored with God. Bored with His church. Bored with worship. Bored with the scriptures. Bored with prayer. Bored with the sacraments. And we get proud. We get proud. Because we look around and say, look at all this stuff I deserve totally that keeps me safe and happy and warm. I live in a world that gives me what I want. I live in a world that does what I command it to do. This is the connection between the sin of pride and the excess of wealth. I hope you see it. It's also the connection between pride over sexual identity and excess of wealth. Just to put it simply, there's a reason you don't see pride marches in third world countries. It is genuinely a first world phenomenon. It's a product of excess. Now, let me speak briefly to those who might be right in the middle of the sexual confusion to which I've been talking about. Because it dominates the conversation and certainly the imagination of our culture. And there are varieties within that confusion, okay? I'm going to speak as delicately as I can. There are men and women who, as best they can tell, have from their earliest days been what we call same-sex attracted. There are others who, for various reasons, develop and pursue that affection later in life. So that is, it wasn't always true of them. It wasn't always, they didn't always feel that way internally, and then they do. There are others who are drawn into such temptations for only a season, and still others who never experience any temptation or inclination of this particular kind. So there are, in terms of sin and temptation, possibilities, differing accounts. There are also varieties of testimony regarding the struggle itself among Christians. There are some who know a great sense of deliverance from same-sex attractions, uh, impulses, affections, these kind of things. And there are others who struggle quite significantly for a long time. Still others who, while they don't wish to pursue the sin and the lifestyle, continually make allowances for themselves, for their imagination, for their flesh, the stews that our our catechism talked about, so that they remain both perpetually enslaved and perpetually embattled. As a pastor, I would advise different courses for different cases. If you're curious to learn more, I would recommend a few things. First, that you talk to me or to one of our elders about your struggle. The worst thing any Christian can do, I should say one of the worst things, but it's way up there, beloved. One of the worst things a Christian can do is keep their hardest struggles a secret. The second thing, if you're interested, I would encourage you to read accounts and testimonies of those who have known a real measure of rescue and deliverance from what the Bible calls unnatural attractions. Rosaria Butterfield might be a good place to start. Christopher Yuan, Y-U-A-N, might be another. 
another fellow named Douglas Wilson has a short booklet called Letters on Homosexual Desire that you might find helpful. My bottom line of encouragement to you is to see how this passage in Ezekiel speaks to the nature of questions that actually surround the sexual identity debate today. Wealth produces excess. Excess produces expectations. Specifically, the expectation is, over the course of my life, I want stuff and I get it. Right? If I want things, I get them. Again, the blessing of wealth and the blessing of provision is not an evil thing. And we are not called to be ashamed of God's gifts. I would, tell, I would offer to you that's a sin. But excess and luxury can and often do create a pattern and a habit in your life. You want something, you get it. You want something, you get it. Desire, desire met. Fulfillment over and over and over again. You don't even have to wait. My dad's probably feeling very vindicated for all the instant gratification lectures you gave me when I was a teenager. You were right. And one of the major insights from this text in Ezekiel is that the longer that pattern runs for you, the more you will begin to believe that mere existence of a desire means that the desire must be satisfied, whatever it is. And that is a lie that has captivated the imagination of our wider culture. Having said that, let me ask what I think is a final lingering question that you might notice I didn't address from the text in Ezekiel, which is what about what the thing about neglecting the poor? How does excess lead to neglect of the poor, which was a big part of Sodom's sin? Well, briefly, when you forget, because of excess, when you forget what it is to need and to be needy, you stop caring about those who are in need. When you stop feeling the hurt of the needy, you forget what it is to need. Now, sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes, like, we use our excess and our possessions and our stuff to build up walls, like protective walls, so we don't ever, ever, ever feel that hurt again. That, that's possible. Because need hurts. Yeah? So our question should be, what has God given us to do then? with our lives, and with the excess in our lives, wherever it may be. And my answer is charity. The neglect of the poor is, is, you might have noticed, kind of accented in verse 49. I want to offer to you that charity, that is care for the poor, is one of the primary safeguards God has actually given you against the threat of excess and what it can do to you. Against that which threatens to numb your soul. And so let's talk briefly about charity. If you get one thing from the sermon today, get this. I think we need to see charity as a weapon, not just as a good work. It is a good work, okay? Giving to the poor, giving resources to those who need it, because you have them and your neighbor needs them, yeah? That's, that's a good work. It's not just a good work, though. It's a weapon. Because if you are rich, and dear saints, most of you are rich, charity is your weapon against the poison of excess that will slowly but surely seduce you, intoxicate you, numb you, spiritually speaking, and finally kill you. Charity is your weapon in the fight. Probably my favorite observation about God's purpose in money comes from John Piper. He says the reason why God gives you money is so you can show the world that money is not your treasure. Money and power exert their... Money, exert, bleh, money exerts its power over you when you hoard your stuff and when you hold your stuff tightly to your heart and it loses that power when you give it away. A great insight on this comes out of Psalm 1. 
It's not going to go up here, but it's in your bulletin. I don't know if you noticed, Psalm 1 was our call to worship this morning. So if you look at it right now, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, what God has said, right? On his law, he meditates, thinks about it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Okay? Man, you read that, and you're like, wait, Pastor Brian, prosperity. There it is. Right? God-dignified prosperity. It's not bad. No, it's not. What does the prosperity look like, though? Read it again. What's the metaphor? The metaphor of prosperity, godly prosperity, is a man who's like a tree, who's bearing fruit and has healthy leaves that don't wither. Okay, right? Work with me. Follow me here with this metaphor. What does fruit do? Well, it feeds people. Okay? What do big, healthy leaves on trees do? They give people shade. They protect people from heat and rain. They give shelter. You see? The purpose of prosperity is provision for others. That's the biblical purpose of prosperity. The guilt of Sodom is that she took all of God's gifts and used them as opportunities to declare we are gods. Right? We're the gods. Worship us. And so the purpose of your prosperity is to produce fruit that feeds others. Shade that shelters others. Run with that metaphor and push it into the corners of your life and your job and what the Lord has given you. Whatever that is. Whatever season of life you're in. Charity is not a tax on your stuff. It's a safeguard for your soul and it's a weapon against in this fight. So what are the wealthy to do? What are the wealthy to do? Paul actually tells us 1 Timothy 6, I'm going to read this briefly to you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them what? Don't be proud. We know where that leads. Thank you, Ezekiel. Don't be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich should also feel really guilty for being rich and give... Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Nice little play on words there. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold. You want to you take hold and, and, and hold on to something. Not your stuff, but that which is truly life. On Friday, I took a road trip down to Slidell along with Greg Mook um, because he had to pick up a minivan that he and Elizabeth are going to be using for the rest of their time stateside. And the reason we drove all the way to Slidell to get a vehicle is because Greg and Elizabeth arranged to, to use this minivan from an organization called, and no, I'm not making this up, Righteous Rides. Okay? It's and what Righteous Rides does is supply vehicles to missionaries who are stateside for any length of time. It's pretty cool. Righteous Rides is basically a group of retired auto mechanics and engineers who provide these vehicles to, to missionaries. And I thought, okay, this organization's probably got like a lot of locations. Slidell is maybe just the closest one to us. And, and, and so it was. What I didn't know is that we were going to pick up the minivan from the home of the actual like founder of the whole thing, right? And so, so he lives in, um, founder of the whole organization. His name is Brett and, uh, and his, his wife's name is Tina, right? And so, so Greg got, that's uh, actually a, they've got a car elevator in their garage. How cool is that? 
And that's, you can see the minivan, which was in the garage underneath it, and they pulled it out there and put it in the driveway for him. Um, and so, so, so Brett retires after working as a mechanic for Chrysler for several years. So he retires, and he starts asking, he and a bunch of other retired guys from Chrysler, how do we spend our money and our talents for the kingdom of God? How do I take this knowledge that I have about cars and how to fix them and how to make them work and use it for the kingdom? And look, I don't think they'd mind me telling you, I don't know them very well, but they are super wealthy. It's one of the nicest houses I've ever seen. It was super nice. They've got a beautiful home. It's on the water. As best I can tell, they're taking this this righteous rides idea and they're trying to die poor. So if you're wondering, can rich people serve the kingdom? My answer is a resounding yes. Okay? So I just want to make that clear. If they take seriously that charity is their weapon in the fight and that the more you give away, the more it's going to be a blessing to you. Right? Now, I think I have enough time to to wrap up. I have a brief kind of excursus on on tithing, and you're like, how the heck are you going to really... No, it has a point. It has a point, and it connects, so stick with me, I promise. So, because when it comes to tithing, people ask a lot of questions like, how much should I give, right? And should we really use a 10% tithe? Um, If you want to know my opinion, I think there are two extremes. On the one side, you have people who are like super legalistic about the tithe, and they draw a straight line from 10% in the Old Testament to present-day offering plate Sunday morning. And then on the other side is this kind of smug attitude of like, that's in the Old Testament, we don't need that anymore. And I think both are wrong. I think that giving a tithe, uh, 10% of your income, to support your local church where you are a member is a great start or a great goal. That is, if you're not in a place where you can do that, I would say that's a great goal. There's biblical precedent for it. Most people would say, yeah, good goal to aim for. But I would also caution you against telling yourself when it comes to giving to the local congregation or to anything else, frankly, I would caution you against saying to yourself, you know, I'll give when I have more so that I can actually give. But right now, I really can't afford to be charitable at all. I would simply observe, look, that most people, when they are blessed with an increase in their income, also raise their standard of living accordingly. It just tends to be what happens. Okay? It's very rare for, for people to increase their income and like, not increase their standard of living. Okay? Most people, when their income goes up, their standard of living goes up at the same rate. And, I mean, look, if, 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 you, if you come into a lot of money and increase your standard of living, it can also lead to a lot of stress and heartache, right? Some, some of you might know. I will say, I have known men who, it seems to me, I think that's the charitable way I'll put it, it seems to me are, are struggling not to be slaves of mammon, slaves of money. But I've never heard them say it that way. They don't say, you know, I'm really struggling not to be a slave of mammon today. Most men don't put it that way. Here's what they do say. They say, you know, my wife is accustomed to a certain standard of living, and I can't bear to disappoint her. Okay? So husbands and wives, let me offer to you, maybe you need to have that talk for heaven's sake. All right? Maybe you need to have the do we need to lower our standard of living talk so that we can sharpen the weapon of chastity and spiritual uh, chastity. That too, charity. (laughs) Sorry. 
Sharpen the weapon of charity in spiritual warfare. Do we need to have the talk so that weapon can become available to us? Think about it and maybe talk about it. So if you are uncommonly wealthy, you have a lot of money, then, then God's going to expect you to use that in different ways. But is that the only motivation for charity? Ourselves. Right? It's, not, it's not wrong to say charity, weapon. I'm going to fight for the health of my own soul with charity. That, that's good. It's not the only purpose of charity. If we're to believe Ezekiel, the guilt of Sodom, in addition to pride, excess, abominations, is that she didn't help the poor. So we must help the poor. Because we're a really rich land. We are a land filled with a lot of prosperous ease. And we are a land filled with abominations. To quote Billy Graham, if God does not judge our land, he will owe Sodom an apology on the last day. So weaponize your charity. Realize it's part of our calling. It's part of what it means to be Christians. And there are two pitfalls here that I think are wrong, okay? Be aware of them. One is to complain that Christians don't help the poor, right? We just walk around saying, oh, Christians don't ever help the poor. Isn't that terrible? Sorry. Christians don't ever help the poor. Isn't that terrible? And that's a lie, by the way. And it grieves me to see how much that lie is propagated by other Christians. It's like, gee whiz, who needs to be afraid of the slander of the world when we're so ready to slander ourselves? Some Christians really get a, a thrill. Sometimes I wonder out of being like the slander campaign for the church. But the very fact that most people in our country, Christian or not, believe the poor should be taken care of is because of Christianity. The reason why Western culture believes, hey guys, we ought to sacrifice some of what we have to take care of the poor. We ought to build homeless shelters and start food banks and fund orphanages. That's because of Christianity. Even the atheistic scholars of Western Civ admit that. But the priority of charity is precisely why Christianity grew so much in the West. I don't know if you know that, but... but when Christianity came to the West, we were the chieftains of charity. We understood, this is why, because we understood that authority comes through service. Authority comes through service. Or to put it another way, that which rescues you will always earn your allegiance. That which rescues you will always earn your allegiance. That's true of charity. Whatever rescues you will earn your allegiance. It's true of material wealth. Here's what I mean. If, if you, like, maybe a few years back, maybe you read a Dave Ramsey book or went to a Dave Ramsey seminar, and Dave Ramsey rescued you out of debt, right? If, that, if that's your story, you are going to preach Dave Ramsey's methods until you don't have breath. Because that which rescues you gains your allegiance. If a particular psychological therapy gave you some sense of light and hope, you are going to become an evangelist for that kind of therapy because that which rescues you always earns your allegiance. We have to be really mindful of this. Why was the church so much stronger in the earlier days of our history? Because we were the chieftains of charity. We rescued people out of poverty and the rescuers always have the authority because that which rescues you will always earn your allegiance. Now, nobody understands this better than our modern welfare state. Why have federal and state governments sought so zealously to be the chieftains of charity? Because that which rescues you will always have your allegiance. 
Once, the, once our government figured out it could make slaves out of the needy, it became the fount of all charity. So a question might be, why does the state have such power and even such worship and obedience from so many today? The answer is because the state fancies itself a god. But if we look at the question another way, what has happened to our evangelism? Why has so much Christian evangelism absolutely surrendered its authority and its power and its potency? Why have so many of us lost our zeal for evangelism? The answer is because sometimes we appear, appear to be preaching a gospel that saves souls but not bodies. It saves souls but lets bodies starve. Historic Christianity didn't do that. And that's why for a time and a season, Christianity brought kings to their knees and nations to prosperity. Because the Christians drew their authority from charity. Charity was the authority. It authenticated the gospel that they preached. For the sake of time, I'm going to jump forward a bit. A lot of the conversation about helping the poor today revolves around public policy. Like you have to support one party or else you don't care about the poor. You have to support this candidate or you don't care about the poor. Now that, that kind of accusation and assertion is on par with the moon is made of cheese and I would invite you to treat it that way whenever you hear it. But if you want to see your evangelism endowed with authority, you must understand that evangelism was always meant to be coupled with charity. And my challenge to all of us is to pray that God would show us the needs of our neighborhood and the needs of our city and start by helping people with faces, not by solving problems with programs. Now, there's a time for that, okay? There's a time for that. But I want to say where I think we ought to start helping people with faces rather than trying to solve problems with programs. We support programs, right? Food bank, heart gallery, foster care coalition, all good works. Yes and amen. But if you want to see your evangelism endowed with authority, be like the good Samaritan who simply started with the guy closest to him who is needy. Help people with faces, right? Before problems with programs. So my conclusion is that do you know that when Jesus invites us to his kingdom, what does he say? What does he say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does Jesus do with poor men and women? He feeds them. This is what the mediator of the new covenant does for his people. He gathers them around his table and he feeds them. I've been reading a book on poverty that I would recommend, uh, uh, Poverty and Riches and Wealth and so on. It's by a guy named George Grant. It's called In the Shadow of Plenty. I'm only about maybe a quarter of the way through it, as you can see, but it's really, really good. Like what I've gotten so far is really solid. And actually the quotation on your bulletin this morning is, is from, from George Grant from the book. George Grant calls the Lord's Supper, quote, the ultimate sign of the church's influence over the world because the crumbs from this table feed the nations, end quote. The Lord's table is of central importance to us as Christians. Do you know why? Because this is what we do. We come in in Jesus' name and the hungry, spiritually and physically, get fed. We don't go running to the bureaucrats to do that for us. We enable families to care for each other, and we, the congregation, prioritize caring for those who don't have families. We welcome the poor in spirit to this table, where Christ himself comes and feeds us. Our own Savior and Master and Lord, true bread from heaven, true food of eternal life, comes and blesses us. Why? Why? so that we might bless others. 
In fact, in, in old Scottish Presbyterianism, they had a tradition of taking up an offering for the poor right after the Lord's Supper. And the idea was, just as we have been fed, now we are feeding others too. That was the idea. And so if you want to do that today, we actually have two ways you can do it. One is by this thing we call the Missionary Encouragement Fund, which is that it's a light brown box, right, just right by that door, that exit door, um, to my left and to your right. And the Missionary Encouragement Fund, we gave it that really cool name because that's exactly what we do with it. We encourage missionaries with it. Um, every cent that goes into that box goes to supporting and helping and encouraging missionaries who are on the field, supplying their needs. We also have this thing called the Benevolence Fund, and so you can write that in the line of your checks or on an envelope or whatever, or we've got a space for it in the uh, giving app as well. Every cent of that Benevolence Fund, sometimes also called the Fellowship Fund, goes to people in need. Right? Wherever we find needs, we, we uh, authorize the deacons to go and meet those needs with whatever money's in the Benevolence Fund. Those are two easy ways to extend charity just beyond what, you're, uh, what you give to support this congregation. And so Jesus calls us to this table in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the one broken and crucified for us, whose spilled blood speaks our forgiveness, pronounces us clean again and again until the last day. The table also illustrates the reality of who we are, the poor in spirit, the ever-dependent, the always needy, coming again and again and again, not to... Give to God as though He needed anything, but to receive from Him so we might be a blessing to others. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our Father, so as we gather then around this table, help us to see it for what it is, which is a wonderful gift. Our Lord Jesus coming to serve us, coming to bless us, coming to feed us with what we need most, which is more of Him. Thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name, amen.